Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Literacy Podcast. Melissa and Lori love literacy. We are thrilled with today's guests. We've been waiting for this for a long time, if we're being honest. And I know that this is going to be such an important and impactful conversation. Melissa, I know you're excited too. Yeah. And I can say that we have had, um, you know, a couple of times we've asked our guests or our listeners who they would like to have on the podcast. And we have specifically had requests for Kareem Weaver. So <laughs> we are really excited to have him here today to not just for us to talk to you, but to um, get our guests excited about listening to Kareem today. So welcome, Kareem. Thank you. I'm glad to be here and tell you guests, you better be careful what they ask for. <laughs> you're the most requested for sure yeah you were in our facebook group you were the most requested it was it was you i think louisa moats so we're trying to we're trying to over promise or under what is it under promise and over deliver <laughs> so we've got to co- okay yeah thank you so kareem would you start off by sharing a little bit about yourself in case you know Listeners aren't uh, aren't familiar with what you're up to right this moment. Um, a little bit about myself. Let's see. I'm from Richmond, <laughs> California. Born in Oakland, raised in Richmond. Inner city kid. Um, and I was raised in the late 80s during the crack epidemic. And our town was on fire. And I saw things that um, no kid should see, frankly. Um, and I always wanted to figure out what was, how do you change things? And I remember after setting a building on fire, that's a whole nother story. We won't get into that. A police oh, officer <laughs> told me, a police officer told me, young man, there's more than one way to help the community. And so I think I was eight at the time, maybe seven. I started looking for other things and I landed on education. Um, and I've been at it, you know, I've been at it. So I was a teacher for a long time in Oakland, in South Carolina. Um, during my master's work, I was in the juvenile justice um, system in South Carolina. And then um, since then, I did other administrative type things, vice principal, principal, whatever, whatever. And then um, worked, actually worked in nonprofit space and funder and all this kind of stuff. And finally just landed on literacy. And I've been working with the NAACP for years now. Um, at the state level, a little bit of time, I mean, a little bit of time at the state level, but mostly the local level in Oakland uh, on the education committee. And then started a nonprofit fulcrum to really focus on literacy um, and to support the goals of the NAACP as best we could and other coalition members. And here I am. We're just trying to make a difference in, in getting kids to read. Yeah. Thank you, Kareem. I noticed that in your bio, um, it says, you have a master's in clinical community psychology from the University of South Carolina. How did that come to be? How did you go from undergrad? Do you, you yeah. have an undergrad education? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was a psych major and Spanish major in college. And um, my lady friend at the time, my girlfriend was from South Carolina. And so I didn't want to break up. <laughs> and she didn't want to break up. So we got married <laughs> and moved to uh, South Carolina you know, that's what it is. That's life. Right. And mm-hmm. did grad school down there. 
And when I was there, my assistantship, which is basically how you pay for it, you know, the, the support that you get, whatever the program is, I was mm-hmm. in the juvenile justice facility. Okay. And, and so in addition to spending nights in the psych ward, in addition to all the other things that, that you could do, um, we also that do. I was um, I was a, a critical care manager. So I was a critical care unit. So kids were in deep distress in an orphanage. And then I worked at a group home. I, I did all kind of stuff. And I was just out there trying <laughs> to help kids. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. I just knew yeah. psych, you know, and clinical community psychology. My thing was, as a kid, how could all this stuff happen? How could the community allow these things to happen? Why is the grocery store down the street selling crack paraphernalia? Why is, why are the parks, why we got glass all in the park, in the, in the, in the grass at the park? Why don't we, you know, just what's the community's mind? And now as an educator, you would think that it doesn't connect because I didn't, it wasn't an education masters or whatever it is, or, you know, but I also wanted the same thing. How could we let this stuff happen? As educators, mm-hmm. what's the psychology for the community, the group, the collective? How do we let it get this far where our kids can't read? And we're, we're all it's so it's the same type of deal, which is how do you get to the root cause of what's of what's going on? That's what I was interested in. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing in education. You know. Yeah. So for those that don't know, Fulcrum stands for full and complete reading is a universal mandate. And you've already kind of mentioned that. Literacy is what your focus is. I'm wondering yeah. if you can talk about like how, you know, of all those things that you saw <laughs> of like what's going on for, for people, like why did, why did literacy become the thing that you're fighting for? Um, that's a good question. Why literacy? <laughs> well, so I worked when I was a teacher after a while, I mean, I had done the thing, you know, I'd been a teacher, one teacher of the year, a couple of times at different schools. Um, I loved it. I loved it. It came at a cost, but I loved it. But it came a point where I was like, I wrote a letter to the board and basically said, what do y'all need? What is this? What, like, why our kids aren't reading? They're not writing. They're not doing math. This is crazy. And this is a thing. I forget what year. It was a while ago. But I wrote the board members. I was like, what do y'all need? And they had all kind of different answers. Oh, we need parent involvement. We need this. We need that. One board member wrote me, we need help getting kids to read. But I don't think you can do that as a teacher. So I was like, oh, okay. So then I became a principal, this principal prep program. I didn't have any money. And they were like, look, we'll pay for you. Just, you know, come on. So I did that for a while. The school was, you know, turned, quote unquote, turned around and all that type of stuff. They still closed the school because it was mm. politics and race and all of that. But it's, the kids were learning. Um, and then I did some other stuff. And after a while, I stepped back. My father passed away. And I was like, I'm tired of spinning my wheels. I'm tired of giving everything I have, everything I have and some things I don't have to a system that isn't changing. The yeah. kids aren't learning like they need to be. So what am I going to do? So I, I spent months just doing a root cause analysis to figure out what's going on. You know, you keep asking why, why is this? Why is that? Why is that? Why is that? And it kept coming back to the fact that they can't read. They can't read, you know, uh, whether it's dyslexia, whether it's dystichia, whether it's dystopian, 
whatever, the reality is so twisted that it it just is confounding. So I was like, I'm going to do this. Come hella high water. And um, so that's it. And I kept going until, you know, unfortunately through the NAACP, you know, you, you can you can move, you can push. And I kept going until I think I was down in my last four color copies in a little red folder. <laughs> and and my partner, Liza, <laughs> literally, I had been through all my family savings. I had gone through everything. And my wife was like, OK, I love you. You know, where is this going, <laughs> baby? <laughs> you know, we got kids. So what, what's going on? And um, my my partner, Liza, was like, look, we need to turn this to a nonprofit um, so you can actually sustain yourself and we can raise some money to do the things you're talking about doing. We need to actually do it. I was mm-hmm. like, you ain't said nothing but a word. Let's go. And so ever since then, <laughs> you know, it's literacy, literacy, literacy. And what I'm finding out is that these school systems, public, charter, private, whatever, they can't focus to save their life. It's it's like whatever the hot issue of the moment is, there they go. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, so not only is it literacy, but it's also leadership. They can't they can't focus. And um, so with those two things, that's like, let's go, let's get it. So I've been after it ever since. Yeah, I think we saw that a lot during the pandemic. It was like, OK, the. Let's talk about masks. Oh, let's talk about virtual learning. And instead Man. of, you know, the, the the places that were able to stay the course with, you know, high quality materials with like all the things that supersede the um, the right now issues were able to continue to make change for students mm-hmm. and continue to help students versus the ones that got derailed. Those were I mean, I just think those those had a much more difficult time. So I, I, that really resonates what you just said. And everybody's got their thing. This is what I realized too. Like I was just engaged with a couple of board members in Oakland the other day on uh, online and each of them is different. One of them was talking about teacher attrition and that's all she wanted to talk about, which is okay. The other one was talking about charter schools and, and privatization and all of this. Like that's his thing. Like that's his world. And that's okay. Like everybody can have a thing. But what I'm trying to get them all to understand is your thing without literacy isn't a thing. I don't care what you're talking about with the with the uh, um, the teacher turnover so high because the teachers can't do the job that they really want to do. So what you're going to do, stay there and spin your wheels for the rest of your life. Get paid. But your but your um, it hurts. It hurts. Mm -hmm. Or um, the privatization thing. uh, Hey. Whatever, do your thing. People have ideologies and beliefs. Okay, fine. But guess what? The AFT said a long time ago, if the kids can't read, these institutions are going to fail. So maybe you might want to focus on literacy. I mean, really focus (laughs) on it. You know what I mean? We think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kareem, what I noticed at our board, like my local school board meetings, is that there are a, a lot of board members, you know, up there. But not a lot of them have background in literacy or necessarily education. And that's really scary that school board members who don't have, I mean, and I will say, right, like I have an educational background and I learned about science of reading well after college. So, you know, let's take all of this that I'm saying with a grain of salt. But these folks who are up there making big decisions for entire districts of students and in Maryland here, we're very big. Each district is, you know. 
thousands and thousands and thousands of students and their decisions are impacting that. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Is that similar in Oakland? Is it, you know, are are there people up there making decisions who really don't know a lot about education? Don't know a lot about the research or, or maybe they do. Man, y'all caught me on the wrong day. (laughs) We got so much stuff going on in Oakland (laughs) that I don't have a filter right now. Pray for me. Pray for me. Um, But I'll say is that, okay, yeah, that matters. But what really matters is the chief academic officer. That's the question. Chief, I had an opportunity to become a superintendent years ago. And I had it all worked out. I had, you know, in conversation and negotiation, whatever. But the people who I had targeted to be on my team, the more I dug, there was one thing I couldn't get past. And that was that the person I had tabbed to be a chief academic officer was a believer in um, guided reading. I wouldn't even say that. She was a Lucy fan, like a fan. I love Lucy. I'm like, yep. what am I doing? Wait a second. Hold on. Wait a second. I know. I don't I know want do you want the job or do you want to do a job? I had to ask myself that question. I was like, man, I ain't never been about a job. You know, uh, I had to remember who I was. And so I declined that. And and I no longer want to do that. I'd probably save my life. Real talk. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but you're talking about the board and accountability. They don't know. Man, most of these boards, they just play public servants. Right. They come mm-hmm. from the public whatever their job is. And here they are, they got voted in and not necessarily educators. This few and far between that board member that's been in the classroom, first of all. And then, you know, from in my view, the staff has got to lead from behind. They have to help educate the board. It's a partnership. The superintendent, they got one employee, the superintendent and that staff or the superintendent has got to manage up. There's got to be somebody with their hand on teaching and learning for literacy who gives a damn, excuse me, who cares enough about it to speak truth to power and not just power up, but power sideways as well. So that means all these folks that got hustled by, you know, these different movements and these different fads and trends speak truth to that. The the, the person above you who might fire you speak truth to that. The, the, the people who are outside with picket signs and telling everybody who life matters and who life don't speak truth to that. Say, hey, y'all, guess what? The kids can't read. So what y'all talking about? Is what you're doing going to get the kids to read? If not, we can't hear that right now. You know, and to the board to say we understand all the rest of this. We understand your budget. We understand the configuration, the org chart, and all this. The question is, what's going to get our kids reading and put them in a position to go after their goals, not us trying to trying to dictate what their goals should be. So it's the board, yeah, for accountability purposes. It's the board. So here's a question. I'm gonna put. I know this is supposed to be. I'm going back at you. you, um, you here's, here's the question. You know, we now have shifted towards. For, for some districts have shifted towards the science reading. Some have. Some. Um, others are are dead set in where they're at. Whatever their student. How come nobody's getting fired? Yeah. Where? How come? Where's the accountability? We always talk about accountability for teachers. And then people want to blame parents. They want to make parents accountable. Read your kids. Do this, do that. Accountability. Okay, we got a whole jail system for accountability. Where's accountability for these superintendents? Where's name me one superintendent that has of an urban school district that has ever been fired fired for low academic achievement? 
You can't name one. It doesn't happen. Right. And, and go one step beyond that. Where's the chief academic officers who, you know, they couldn't get it done. And after three years, we had to move in a different direction. It's okay if things are rough, if you grow and learn from it and you're honest about what's happened. So we need people, and this is my opinion, we need people who can say, yeah, we tried this. I thought it was the right thing. It didn't work out. Okay. But I've learned more. I've studied uh, whatever the thing was. I've researched, walked around the country, whatever. And I realized, my team and I realized that we have to make these shifts. So please learn with us. That's cool. But what? But instead, what goes off is, goes on is, you know, do this, five years of do this, then that doesn't work. Then three more years of do that, and then that doesn't work. And a couple more years to do that, then I'm gone for the next job. Yeah. I'm and then tired. The teachers and then are all like of those things that you just of it. <laughs> shared, like teacher attrition and all those other like yeah. underlying right. issues start bubbling up because they're rising to the surface to, yeah. under the that's guise right. of everything else that's happening. Sure. That's right. It's funny that you say that, like, you know, learn more because it, when you had originally said it, I just wrote down on my paper, like with big stars, knowledge, mm-hmm. like that is so powerful for our school board members. And and also to know, I mean, to know what is what is research based, what is legit <laughs> and, you know, don't be fooled by packaging or presentations and knowledge is, has so much power when you're making big, important decisions and mm-hmm. curiosity, right? Like ask those questions to get to the bottom of it. Lori, nobody's asking questions. Not for real. Yeah. For example, school board, what I mean by that is, so you school board, you're going to approve the reading curriculum or whatever the, the new adoption, you're going to, you got to vote on that stuff, the money for right, it. That's right. would, so, so they come to you and they say, okay, board, we have this new literacy curriculum. We haven't had an adoption in five years. Here we go. We recommend XYZ program. Okay. What are the questions that they're asking? First of all, these are people who are not, um, most of them are not educators. So they, right, so they much, don't know, right? They, yeah, right? they don't know what to ask. And so they have to trust at some point. Okay. So first thing is trust has to be affirmed. If they violate your trust and they, they ask you to approve something that you find out later was not right for kids and, 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 and there's no accountability there, then you board members are the fools or the cowards, yeah. one or the other. Um, the second thing is board members, there's some, there's some strengths to not being an educator. Because you haven't been in the bubble. You ask, yeah. you ask 10 educators, and a lot of us would say, I love Lucy, because we're in the bubble and we don't know, you know, you know what our co- <laughs> so, so you're outside the bubble, so you can ask common sense questions. Like, so you telling me to adopt this, to vote on this, does this have evidence of student success? Okay. Outside so- of the publisher. Yeah, right. Yes. Outside of the publisher's research. Sorry. Right. You, no, you got it. Independently verified evidence of Thank success. Yeah. Send me that research report. I want to read it. With lots of students. Like, I would love a meta-analysis on that, if That's preferably, right. right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, on top of that, here's some common sense things. So how long does it take to prepare for a teacher to be prepared for full implementation of this thing on a weekly mm-hmm. basis, Right. Uh, what, what, what just just to, you don't need a, a degree in education to ask questions like that. How much does it cost? And, and then I'm asking myself, OK, so if it takes X number of hours to prepare, but my teacher contract says they only get Y hours to prepare. This ain't a fit. I don't care what the, the uh, brochure says, but okay. you got to stop being scared of staff and ask questions as common sense. 
you know, Oakland, I, you know, Chicago has 300 minutes a week to prep. Oakland has 100 minutes a week to prep. Fundamentally, those are different. They're going to adopt completely different things because right. they're playing in different arenas. So, but but you can't be a hundred prep minute uh, uh, district and start adopting programs that for three hundred prep minutes, and that's only reading. Right. Then you got math, science, all the rest. <laughs> and 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 so here, so the message that educators get is: wait a second, it's no way in he double hockey stick that I can do this, and everybody knows it. So, what are they really saying? What they're really saying is, man, this ain't matter. This ain't that big a deal. You ain't really got to do this all the way. And it's up to you what to cut and slice and dice. And at that point, it's all bets off. It goes out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't talk about full implementation. It's not when you knew from the very jump that the thing wasn't even viable. And so even some of the most popular structured literacy programs out there today, it's no way. uh, It's no way you can have full uh, implementation consistently because, you know, it's just too much. Some people and they expect teachers to be superheroes and all that. Okay, fine. Maybe, maybe there's that season of life where you know where you you might want to be able to do that or pull that off. You ain't got no kids or whatever else. But most folks are regular people, right. and they got to figure out how to do this so that this job is doable for regular people who do their best, who do what they're contracted to do, and can do it right. One hundred percent. Yeah. So. I feel like Melissa froze, but I'm going to keep going. Melissa can right. bump herself cool. in and out. I'm cool. wondering, like, well, I'm not wondering. I'm going to say that when I think of your name, Kareem, it's so synonymous with change for me. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share and illuminate what change are you fighting for? Like, what needs to change and why? And I'm going to throw one more question in that we didn't talk about. What did you learn? What lessons did you learn from your own daughter's? dyslexia diagnosis that you feel like would be helpful in this change conversation? All right. Well, I'll do it's one a lot. I can repeat whatever you, you remind need. Remind me the second part afterwards with my daughter. I but will. The first I will. one is, I think you said, what am I trying to get done? Is that it? The first yeah, one? Yeah. Like what change are you fighting for? Huh. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really fighting. happy that we, we caught you today. I'm just going to yeah, say man, that. I'm really man. happy. What I'm fighting for is for common sense to prevail. I'm fighting for these kids that have a, a chance, a fighting chance in life. I'm fighting for um, civil rights. I'm fighting for kids to have literacy, to have the ability to read, write, to think freely, unencumbered by by prejudice and dogma and and politicization. I'm reading for people to to be free men, to be raised to be free men and women. All right and now, as a black man. Um, I know for a fact that not everybody wants you to be free. Some people want to control your mind, your thinking, your thoughts. I, I don't I don't give any quarter to any ideology that wants to dictate what children think. That's the parent's job. It's the parent's job to, tell, to teach you this, that and the third. We might not even agree with half the things the parents say, but that's their child. Right. That's but right. what I will fight tooth and nail for is for the children to have the tools and skills necessary to go uh, 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 figure out what they want to do in life and go after it. So I'm fighting for freedom of kids' minds. And you can't be free when your mind is in bondage. Period. Um, and right now, you know, and, and we hide behind statistics and so we don't, we look at statistics and 
you know, I always, my, my daughter, maybe this is a segue for the other one. My <laughs> daughter told me one time we was talking and she was like, dad, she saw this newspaper article and she was like, is this true? What is this? The newspaper was San Jose Mercury. It, it said um, 75% of black boys in California can't read. Now, I know people may think that's a joke or whatever, but when you're 12 years old and you're a little girl and you like boys and three-fourths of the boys can't read, you know, man, and and she values, man, she... It, there are serious social implications to what we talk about for families, for communities. We could talk economics. We could talk politics. If if you can't read, you're disenfranchised as a at collectively as a group, as a community and individually within families. You, you can't make your way without reading. It's difficult. As my cousin Cleve Bush said, um, he was incarcerated for about 20 years. He said, when you're illiterate. It makes the cuffs tighter. And, uh, you know, he came out of prison, wrote a book. Uh, what's it called? Uh, Strange, Identical Strangers. And we interviewed each other. And we talked about it and everything. And I interviewed him. And I was like, because, you know, educators think they're, fo- they're focusing on social justice when they're doing all these other things. But the kids already say, man, they're actually contributing to social injustice. This is what he said. Because with all these other things, people can talk over your head and in many ways they can control you. It's, it's a phenomenal, I think it's a phenomenal interview and great insight. So as far as my daughter's concerned with her diagnosis, you know, I taught her how to read. She knew how to, she knows how to read. I, I taught my baby how to read. I Listen, I'm a, a Marvel Collins devotee. That's a whole, we should talk about that at some point in this podcast. Let's do it. Marvel yeah. versus Lucy. Um, so I, I, I taught her, that was my thing. I love to teach reading and her and her brother and her big sister. And she learned and she loved to read. She would read those illustrated classic books and she read it with pizzazz, man. She, so here's the warning sign. Here's the warning. So as every night they read, my son's kind of monotone and, you know, whatever, but he could read, but he was she was like flair and this and that. Then she go to school. All right. That's her going into school. I made her do uh, preschool twice. I made all I made her and her brother do preschool. Twice. They black kids. We can't take no chances. You ain't got to retain them. I'm retaining. I, just, I, I can't take no chance. I got a black son. Yeah. He doing kindergarten twice. Plus, I get an extra year for him to just be a kid. How valuable is that? Yeah. So she goes to school. Preschool, this little private school, and she's doing fine. Gets in the in the traditional public school system, and it starts right up. You know, uh, she did the preschool with him, or the kindergarten. I mean, they did kindergarten twice. They did the kindergarten at the other one, and then with, with, with OUSD, the other one, and then first grade hit. And it was some just it was a disturbance in the forest. By second grade, she was confused. She, they they had a whatever their method was. She was. Man, I know what it was. They was doing guided, guided reading. Yeah, that's, that's what, what I was going to ask. Do you remember what it yeah, was? Like, can you say it? Yeah. Now, I didn't have the words at that time. I didn't have a full understanding of what they were doing because in my mind, I'm, you know, she can read. So I stopped focusing on it. That was my mistake. My job now is a lover. I'm handing you 
a little black girl with all this talent. She's smart. She's loving and she can read. She knows her uh, um, her her little addition facts. Man, I sent her to school ready with my wife's help, who was also a teacher, by the way. By third grade, it was a disaster, a mm. disaster. In fact, I remember going to a school um, like a conference with the teacher or whatever. And, oh, she's such a sweet child. She's so nice. Everybody loves Margot. And that's what happens with girls. With girls, a lot of times, it's like, you know, we're going to love them to death. They're so sweet. They don't cause a lot of problems. They're not getting in fights in class, usually, usually. So yeah. I'll give her, just give her time. The expectations kicking in around what do we expect from our girls? What do we expect from black children? What do we expect from kids at this age? I went in there. And I, I was like, look, this is what it is. We need her to have this, that, and the third. Why is she doing this? Why is she doing that? You know, and the lady was talking to me like I was just ignorant. She was just like, well, you know, we have we have a strategy and you have to be patient and this. And I'm like, what? who is she talking to? And that's I like, I know my literacy. <laughs> real talk, real yeah. talk. But that's like, how sometimes we as educators come off intentionally or not. We do all the edge you speak. Mm-hmm. And edgy explaining. And we talk to parents like they're dumb. And I'm sitting here saying, who, who are you talking to? And I said, listen, I'll, you you really need to step back and teach my, if you can't teach her, let me know. I'll go to the office. We can transfer her class. But I sent her here good to go. Now she's so confused with all this guessing and everything. She don't know what to do. My wife had me step out the room. It, it went down. It went down. So at that point, I kind of had to step <laughs> back a little bit. Um because, you know, black man up at the school barking, that's a whole nother thing. How to advocate and who gets listened to and who gets ignored and, and all that type of stuff. Yeah. I kind of fell into it a little bit. Uh, make a long story short. We kept getting put off and put off and put off Sorry, because we, we wrote we want her tested. And they, they just put that off. OK, we'll get to it. Then this, the, the, the specialist, you know, has a meeting and can't do this before, you know, it's fifth grade. Mm-hmm. We write more letters and we call on this. And then next thing you know, it's sixth grade. Now you're in middle school. So we think in a fresh start. Okay. Now it's seventh grade. And she's trying, 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 trying. Man. I, and I can't blame anybody but myself. Like my aunt told me online on Facebook, she said, you mean to tell me you as an educator with all that education, wh- why did you let this happen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's my aunt Connie. And she don't play. And I, I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't get around that. And that's for every parent out there. How you let this happen? But, and she was like, all of you know, you you the one in the family that been to college and this and that. And how you let this happen? I was like, dang. You know, I think her, that just speaks to the realities of the education culture that's out yeah. there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The realities yeah. of it and the relationship between parents and educators. And the system itself, who gets listened to. And finally, finally, at 10th grade, the summer after 10th grade, we just got private testing. They were supposed to do it. They promised to do it. Man, we didn't have that money. I told you I was down to my last few copies. We didn't have no money. (laughs) I had spent through all the money. Now here I am. You know, man. And finally, I was like, we're going to beg, borrow. We're going to do what we got to do. We got her tested. And she had dyslexia, you know. I mean, it's crazy that it's okay. it's crazy, but it happens all the time. And the fact of the matter is, most yeah. kids never get tested, especially those who are right, minorities, that's, because yes. there's no expectation of them learning in the first place. You know, right. um, in fact, 
So when I talk with people who are dyslexic, most of the folks that I talk to who are white, they say, well, I, they got tested in third grade or fourth grade. And no shade. That's that's rough right there because they've already been traumatized. So I was but, thinking your daughter has gone through so many days of school of trauma, listen, like I'm gonna days. Tell you, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell Years. you something in your listeners. <laughs> My daughter told me because I was talking about dropping out of school and all this stuff. And she said, Dad, you know, there's more than one way to drop out of school. And that hit me. We got kids in schools right now who are in seats. People are getting paid off there and being in seats. They've dropped out mentally, emotionally. And then we come with the social, emotional learning, the wellness bowl and all the rest of this stuff. Fine. But you know what? They've mentally and emotionally checked out for their own survival. My daughter, she, she, because her dad is an educator, her mom was an educator. And I'm all about this, you know, all about this work. I'm in the NAACP. I'm doing all this. And so she can't just drop out. She can't just right. quit and walk so the go streets. through the motions. <laughs> but what she can do is draw all day. She can put that hood on her head right. and sit in the back of the class. She can, uh, she, especially as a little girl, you can just kind of be quiet. Nobody going to say totally. that. Right. Not causing yeah. problems. Just don't, just don't destroy the property and we good. That's the silent deal right. people make with kids all the time. Oh, my goodness. Cream, I'm wondering about... I'm wondering a lot of things, but, um, you know, I just sitting here thinking, you know, you're talking about how critical reading is for everybody, how so many kids are not being taught how to read. And there is a body of research that we know of that, you know, it's not perfect, but it does give us a lot of information about how to read. Why is it still so hard for people to make these changes? Like what do you what do you see out there of like why people stick to the old ways even if they're not working? There's different reasons. There's different reasons. Some people all they need is you to show them Goose Creek Elementary out there in Kentucky, or Seaford, Delaware, or Lane, Oklahoma, or all they need to do is listen to a podcast for Ed Trust West, or or see what what people are doing in different schools, or, and they're like, oh, I didn't know. I'm with it. Some people, it's just that. Mm -hmm. Other people Mm -hmm. are institutionalists. And you have to make the case to them why this benefits the institution. Look, we're spending four times as much in special ed. And the kids with access and privilege get access to non-public schools. you got to pay their full tuition. So why don't you fix it in tier one for general ed? So you you make that case, they win. Others, you make a moral and an ethical case. You bring the NAACP in and talk about civil rights and human rights. But at the end of the day, It's culture. Our culture has baked into it a certain amount of acceptance for kids failing. You mean educator culture? I mean, I mean, or just general, general national culture. We don't have the expectation that all kids will learn to read. We don't. As a society, there's winners and losers. We we are a a, a a ruthless society when it comes to kids and success. Some people are good. Some people are bad. Some people, you know, that's just the mindset that we have in a lot of areas. But the word hasn't gone out. We don't have to lose our kids like this. So I think some of it is just national culture, which then seeps into educator culture. For educators, and if we don't get anything else out of this, I hope this is shared. Um, we are a set upon group. Educators 
feel oftentimes threatened and disrespected. And when you feel threatened and disrespected, you tend to circle the wagons. You tend to protect yourself. It's, it's human nature, individually right. and collectively. Whether it's, you know, we're not getting enough money, we're not getting enough time, whatever the issues are. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. I understand that. But here's the thing. Every sector grows. Everybody makes mistakes, but it's hard to admit. It's hard to acknowledge that things aren't right when you already feel set upon and defensive. Because that's almost like giving ammunition to your enemies. To say that right. we aren't teaching reading right. Well, now, does that mean that they're going to close our schools? Does that mean I'm going to lose my job? Does that mean I'm going to lose my position and status and all that? So there's fear. We need courage in the sector. We need courage for people to say, I'm learning. And, and, and there's no shame in not knowing something that you don't know. There's no shame. Our education institutes, our universities have been teaching us a certain way. Uh, the sector has been pushing a certain way. So people mm-hmm. are, shouldn't be like, you're not a savant. We're human beings trying to figure this thing out. So we got to be yeah. learners. But that takes humility and that takes courage. Yeah. And it takes a willingness to be okay with being wrong. And that's where I think, like, sometimes people are so set in their ways that they see changing their mind instead of as like, gathering more knowledge and then changing their mind and thinking, oh, okay, well, this makes sense now because I know more. Lori, I'm a push on you. So, yes, it's okay to change my mind. But why Mm -hmm. should I go first? Why should I I take the hit? (laughs) Why should I take the hit when I'm doing everything they're telling me to do as an educator? Right. Um, This is the books they're giving me, the program they're giving me. My university taught me this. The principal's saying this. Now you're going to look at me and say, why are you, you no, uh-uh, no. You're doing it wrong? The chief no. academic officer, <laughs> the, the head person in charge should be up there on the mic saying, you know what? We made a mistake. We promoted yes. this form of literacy because that's what, whatever their reason was. But we have since learned that we can get a greater number of kids to read if we do X, Y, and Z. So we're going to have a season of learning. We're going to throw money at it. We're going to get professional development. We're going to get stipends. We're going to find a curriculum that's the easiest to use with the best results for kids. We're going to put our ideologies, we're going to suspend them as we go learn together. Just mm-hmm. say it. Like people understand, but instead there's no accountability up top and it just falls on the educators. I'm not saying educators aren't blameless, you know, but, uh, but, but you can't look at them and say, you can't look at principals and teachers and say, it's all on them. You just can't do that. Well, and they a lot of times are not the people who can make the big change. Like they can make little changes or little tweaks, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a little ecosystem in their classroom or in their school, right? Maybe you have a really savvy leader who's like, let's, let's implement this. Let's try this. Cause I've, I've seen the research, but in accordance with what I think we're all talking about, which is like a wave of big change. It takes what you just said. Yeah. I mean, part of it. The mm-hmm. first step, maybe. Well, that's the school board, too. So if I'm a school yeah. board and I'm hiring, th- this is my question. I, you know, I don't really care where you went to college. Although there's some that I might cross you off if I <laughs> this, but I don't really care. <laughs> I don't care if you're a doctor or master's. I, I don't care. What, what I care about mm-hmm. is 
Do you know how to get children to read? What's the plan for that? All children. And is that plan something that can fit within our structure, both in terms of staffing, in terms of uh, budget, in terms of contract, whatever else? If your plan doesn't fit that, that's the end of the, of the interview. It's just that simple. So these school boards you asked earlier about accountability, they have accountability on who they hire. If you hire somebody, you need to ask those questions. That's on you. You the fool. You should get voted out. You know, or if you focus on everything else but that, that's on you. You should get voted out, you know, and the staff, you know, if they don't do the things they said they would do or could do, well, then they got to go. So but it's like nobody wants to be accountable. Nobody. Instead, you got all the parents who we're upset and we don't know who to yell at, but we mad, you know, and we kept getting spun around in circles from the teacher to the principal to the district assistant associate or whatever, whatever. Next thing you know, unless you have an education attorney. You don't know what to do. Now, now if you have mm-hmm. an education attorney, they can talk that talk and, and your child might get a coupon to go to some non-public school. And then you sign a non-disclosure. Hello, somebody. You'll sign a non-disclosure uh, agreement where you don't tell the other parents what you did. And then they pay for your tuition to go to a private school. But you can't speak on it mm-hmm. because that will mess up the budget and the money. That's real talk. So, you know, accountability has to start at the top and they have to decide. What do they want or what what criteria do they have for leadership? And the biggest one is, can you manage people? Can you not just manage people? Can you um, how do you handle change? Yeah, do you have say, a it has record? to change. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how are you? What is your history as a change man? I would hire mm-hmm. if I was a board member, I would hire somebody who believes in getting the greatest number of kids to read. They have evidence that they've done that, whatever role they've been in in the past in the system. They have a plan to do it at a system level. They've hired towards that. Um, they have committed to managing towards that, including their own accountability. You know, if I if I can't do this in five years, get a new person. Yeah. If they're not talking that talk, that's the wrong person for the job. Yeah. So. I'm going to ask a question that's totally not related to what you were just talking about, but I want to, you mentioned Marva yeah. Collins and I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, speak about that, that, her if you would like to. <laughs> so she, she, Marva Collins is one of the greatest educators our country's ever known. And I, when I was a young guy, I saw a movie about her. I, I, she was like a legend, like an urban legend. Then they came out with the movie a little bit later. And she, so when we talk about science or reading, it's a it's teaching like Marva did. It's teaching. This is in Chicago, and and we have names for things now. <laughs> you know, we have the sound cards and the phonemic awarenesses. She was just doing it. She was doing it, and she it wasn't right. called any of that stuff. It was just she was just it was called good teaching back then. She was from the south, came up to Chicago, was doing her thing um, inside the traditional public schools. Then she went to the made her own school and. Marvel and she gave professional development around the country. It was so tough that people were like, well, it can't be real. She out there faking it. These kids, these poor kids, these poor black kids and poor white kids and poor Latina, they can't really do this. I mean, her kids were excelling. Mm-hmm. And so 60 Minutes did a special on it. And they went out there and they and they said, we want to see what's going on here. So they studied the kids and they found it was incredible. They came back 15 years later, however many years later. 
and did a um, part two on that 60 minute special. Man, them kids, you know, one who has was labeled mentally, uh, educably, I hate to use this term, but that's what they said, retarded. That, that, I know that's not a problem, but that's what they said. Little girl name was Erica. At the end of the special, they said, Erica just graduated from blah, blah, blah university. I think it was Virginia State. Or no, it was Norfolk State University. Uh, magna cum laude. Man. And they asked her and they brought him back for the reunion. It's like, well, what happened? Well, is she spoke life into us. She taught us how to read. We did the classics. So so I'm going to say this to my folks, because I think black folks have a big role in this, because I think in a lot of ways we carry a moral authority in the country that other groups don't have because of our journey. The legislative history of black folks in America is that we got to get folks to teach like Marva did. We, we have we, we can't be so tied to whatever other issues are going on. Listen, just teach the baby step by step. Do do all these little pieces. That's not the only thing we can do with them, but we have to at least give them a good foundation. And, you know, it amazes me that that we have allowed the country to us almost like a cult like status with Lucy Calkins. Like, why are you? Why are we doing that? Yeah. Where's the data? Where's the evidence? Where's the 60 minutes special on Lucy? Right. What happens to those kids? Well, I mean, it's probably that should be outlawed. Right. <laughs> and so and so. But how is it that we don't even speak on the ones who've done it successfully? Why? Why are we shame of our heroes? Why? Yeah. Why don't we talk about this? Hey, wait a second. Hold on. Hold on. What would Marvin do? <laughs> you know what? There has been a generation of educators that's come before before us who have done great things with kids. And we just ignore them. Because whatever's trendy, whatever's popping at the moment. So Marva Collins, uh, her legacy. Now, she passed away a few years back. Um, and uh, but but her if she, and matter of fact, she was almost a secretary of education, but she turned it down. I wish she had been. They asked her to be the secretary oh, of education. Man. But oh she turned it down. man, she was phenomenal. People don't know nothing about her. But she she got down in an area and in a time where, you know, little black and brown kids, little disabled kids. The expectation, which is laid bare as being non-existent. She's like, no, no, no. But one last thing on that. She wasn't trendy. So, you know, she was teaching people classics like Shakespeare and Thoreau and like stuff like that. And so that wouldn't be popular today either. Right. Like, you know, because there's this there's this other element inside. that says it's got to be culturally relevant. Well, I got news for everybody. Right. Cultural relevance is not found in the curriculum. The teacher makes it culturally relevant. You you don't know your kids, so they show up. You don't know what their culture is. You have a general sense, but you don't know who's going to show up in your building. What's the culture of a kid who had never been to school, school before in third grade, like we just saw the other day in Red Bluff? The teacher makes it culturally relevant, and you could do that when you see them. That's you, not in the curriculum. So we have to be focused on certain core elements and principles that have been established as good practice, like American Federation teachers laid out it's on their website right now. The elements of an effective reading program. And then teachers got to breathe life into that stuff. That's her legacy. And that's what I think everybody should at least go check out um, and learn from her example. Yeah. Man, that is a whole, that's a whole nother podcast. Whole yeah, nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. Why, why, why Lucy over Marvel? Why Lucy over Marvel? Why? Why, why was this cult following <laughs> Lucy Calkins when she had no evidence while this black woman is over here in Chicago getting down for generations and then nobody say a word, picking her apart. Yeah. And then Come back 20 years later and the kids are kicking butt, doctors, lawyers, this, that, and the third, raising families strong and, and, and kids graduating cum laude, magna cum laude, summa cum laude. Nobody ever heard of her. What's that about? 
Can we can we have some real talk? Oh. Or what Juanza Kajufu was saying, even you know, right alongside her. Why why can't we read and study people who have evidence of doing right by children instead of people who mm-hmm. can sell us whatever steak oil they got because it's trendy, the brochure is good, and it feels like chicken soup to the soul because it's familiar to our national culture. And it's easy to teach. Mm. Right. Like, quote, easy. Like, it's less prep. What, like, you know, less mental work. You know, well, I ain't going to say that. Uh, and listen, I, I can't. Well, I think, I can't, I think that I mean, that's part it, of it, I, mean, I think. I'll it, say look, it. it's, it's hard to teach. <laughs> I don't care what you're doing. If, if you're really teaching, it's hard. All right. I, I, I don't I've never taught the units of study. So I don't know. I'm assuming that they're grinding, too. Right. Especially if you're trying to get good results for kids, because now you got to fill in gaps. That makes it even harder. Right, but I don't know that teachers know how to do that. I don't know that educators are aware of the gaps sometimes in, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. That's, you got to trust the materials you're given. You know, I yeah. get that. I get that. But at the end of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, most teachers are going are, will do what they're told to do. If you give yeah. me this to teach, I'm going to teach it. That's just yeah. what it is. That's your job. Mm-hmm. You're a designee. You know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the, the power and authority uh, to choose is of higher than you. However, we all know, well, most of us know that when you close that door, that you, you give them what they yep. need. Right. So for me, having taught bilingual for all those years, which just means I had Spanish speakers and different languages and I had the black kids who couldn't read. I know that I had to give them what they needed, which was start from the beginning, go step by step. And those kids are kicking butt. They're kicking butt. So. You're, you're right, though. I hear you. But I don't know if it's about ease of use so much as it is duty. People are bound by duty. Yeah. Know? And I don't know that we'll, we would ever know, you know. Mm-hmm. But I do want to share what you just said. Uh, something resonated with what you just mentioned about teachers really making this relevant for students. I remember being in a Baltimore classroom in a middle school that was very difficult and it was, you know, it was marked as a quote turnaround school. And I remember seeing an eighth grade classroom where a teacher is teaching Shakespeare. And the, you know, the overarching question for that module was what is love? And I will tell you what, every one of those kids was so into Shakespeare and having mm-hmm. the most authentic conversations. First of all, I think because the question was, is, is an awesome question. Like for an eighth grade kind of, you know, coming of age, kids are thinking about that. Like what's love? And what does love look like? Um, but in the context of Shakespeare, they were into it. But this teacher was working it. She, she was into it. And that made so much of a difference, you know, whereas I had been in other classrooms where teachers weren't as jazzed about it. And that does make such a huge difference. Or maybe had expectations that the students wouldn't be able to. Right. right. Either way, the teacher is the key ingredient. The teacher right. has mm-hmm. got to breathe life into whatever it is. And I don't care what material you get. It matters. The curriculum matters. Absolutely. But it's the teacher who breathes life in the thing and who figures out what each child needs on an ongoing basis, both in the program, as an individual, social, emotionally instruct like, and and so it'll never be a situation where you don't need a person in there. There will be no robots ain't coming. I got news for the people with the tinfoil hats. The robots ain't coming. You gotta have people. <laughs> you have to, uh, at whatever scale it is, and and on top of that, that's why we came. I, I don't think we should be afraid of technology. I don't think we should be afraid of new methods of doing things or whatever, um, because ultimately, you know, 
it's going to be human beings connecting with each other, making making connections, um, encouraging people, supporting people, and giving explicit, systematic, direct instruction. Um, and to the degree, and I can't say this enough, to the degree that that we fail to do that, the accountability starts at the top. It has to. Otherwise, the whole venture has no credibility from the folks at the bottom. Absolutely. I, I feel like we could talk all day, <laughs> but I know we only have a few minutes left. Um, and we are excited to start something new um, at the end of our podcast. So, Kareem, you're our first, our first, our first uh, experiment with our new ending. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to ask you five quick questions uh, um, about five things you love. Um, so okay. I'll start us off and then I'll pass it over all to right. Lori. So first question, what do you love to read? Um, I love to read history. I love to read black history and philosophy. Uh, the works of Marcus Garvey. Um, Marvel Collins is a great book. I love to read things that press my mind or that, that push my mind and my thinking. Um, I love to read the Bible and the Quran. I love to read scriptures of all different faiths. I love and to compare and contrast them. Um, I love to read government strategy and documents and philosophy. So, for example, I, I studied the, you know, each, each many major countries or big countries have um, nuclear doctrines. We'll use nuclear weapons if I like to read that stuff because I want to know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I kind of want to know that. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I like to read things that are interesting from a historical perspective and a sociological perspective. And I love to read scripture. Awesome. What do you love to binge watch? <laughs> oh, we'll go man. from scripture to Netflix. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, you know, Netflix, I also got up on this new thing called Pure Flix, which is it's just like Netflix, but the movies ain't half crazy all the time. So I got a Netflix Ooh. account and I have a and I have a Pure <laughs> Flix account. And uh, for families, right. yeah, I Pure Flix. There's a lot of Christian stuff, but it's also like just wholesome romance and sappy stuff, you know, but it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, what have I liked? I liked Black Lightning because it was a male. It was a black man principal who was a superhero. Ooh. <laughs> I was Perfect. like, this is my He come in in the middle of the night and whoop everybody. <laughs> man, I was awesome. like, I'm with that. So Black Lightning was the bomb till it got to like season four and they started doing crazy stuff. But for the first three or four seasons, man, <laughs> oh I was gosh, with yes. um, That is great. Yeah, that was, that's that's what I like to binge watch. And, it's, uh, and, right. and, awesome. and I like to binge watch Korean docudramas. Love them. All right. Yeah. Why? Can I, can I ask Jane why? Numa. Why? Because they're good. Watch Jewel in the Palace, Dave James Ma. I used to, okay. look, at lunchtime, this is one of my secrets of instruction. <laughs> at lunchtime, I used, to, I used to play it for, for class. I have a packed class from 30 to 50 kids every lunchtime watching these episodes because they had subtitles on the bottom so in English. Yeah. And the kids were reading it because they love it. Man, it, so cool. non-readers mm-hmm. became readers watching that show. I'm tempted. Hey, get down. Never waste a minute. (laughs) That is, I think that's one of Tim Rosinski's, you know, fluency guy um, Mm -hmm. tips. He always shares, put the closed captions on. Mm -hmm. If I remember right. Yeah. All right. Number three, what do you love to listen to? Wide open. Man, the 
<laughs> I love it depends on my mute on my mood. So uh three things. And it and they don't even it's so sad, but it's true. So I love classic music like Al Green, uh more Al Green <laughs> and more Al Green, you know, uh, put on his Love and Happiness album, came out in 72, and it's all good. We can ride from here to Carolina on that. Uh, I, I love that genre of music. I like gospel music. Uh, and then my teenage years where I was listening to trash, uh, but, it, you know. <laughs> Who like, wasn't? I mean. It was trash. I, I know I hate to say it, but it was trash, but I loved it. So I'll listen to. I ain't gonna tell you, man. So I grew up. I grew up. I grew up before gangster rap. There was just old school hip hop and rap, and I love that. You know, everything from Curtis Blow yeah. to Dana Dane to you know Slick Rick to you know whatever you know on on the West Coast. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I, I like that too. EPMD on the East Coast, all them folks. Public Enemy, uh, KRS One, but gospel tracks in my classic soul. That's what's up. All right. So what is a memory you love as a teacher or as a student? Any memory as a teacher or a student? I mean, either one or, or yeah, whenever you prefer to share. But yes, just a memory that stands out that you're like, oh, I really love thinking about that. Wow. Um, my godson, I met my son, Kelvin, uh, was a student of mine in, in uh, East Oakland. This is back, I think 96. And, um, I love him. That's my dude. You know, um, he's had a little baby girl. She had the birthday a couple days ago. That's my little grandbaby. Mm. Uh, but when he was a kid, he came with the rough side of the mountain, you know, so I game recognized game. I've been there, done that, man. I feel you. And, uh, we had a actually kind of negotiated for his, like for people on the block to leave him alone, you know, it was hot back then. I was like, look, you know, this dude, he's a good basketball player. I was like, look, man, you know, just go talk to him. And, um, the neighborhood folks, it was like, y'all, I need y'all to just, I need y'all to back off young blood. You know, I got, got black off of him. He got a future, he got potential and I need your help protecting him. And for the most part they did, you know, and it's sad because some of those folks, even some of his relatives ended up getting killed, you know, but I always appreciated them being willing to have a conversation because I'm from Richmond, South Richmond, that's East Oakland. It's a different hood. It's hood is hood, but it's still a little bit different. So, but they recognized game. It was, it was, it was a good conversation, respectful. <laughs> and, uh, watching Kelvin grow and thrive and go through all the challenges of young black adulthood. Mm-hmm. It's been rough, but he's alive. That's my best memory. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll put that out there. All right. Last question. Why do you do what you love for education and literacy? This is what I'm called to do. This is my, this is my calling. Like um, a mentor of mine, Mother Nabiha Shakur said, she said, for some people it's their work. For some people it's their job. She said, this is our work. And uh, don't ever get it confused between your work and your job. You know, and I'm not hating on people who wish their job. They do your job. But for some of us, it's our work. It's not about being a missionary. It's just what we've been called to do. And I believe mm-hmm. this is what God put me on in this earth to do. You know, that and raise my family, do the best I can. But this is this is the deal. So, you know, I'm in it. And to the degree I deviate from that is when I get in trouble. 
You know, that's why people, you know, people say, oh, you did this, you did that. Or how could you, man, look, I'm done with that. I'm trying to do my work. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's why I do what I do. And I, and I love to do it. I'm grateful. Like they say, if you, if you do what you call to do, you never work a day in your life or something like that. I feel like that's the case. Mm-hmm. I feel yeah. like that's the case. Well, we're super grateful for all the things that you shared today. And thank you for sharing, you know, so much about your family and the reason why you're here today and just all this great wisdom about how we can think about the inequities of our system and bring change together. So thank you for that. And thank you for all that you're doing. I mean, your work is incredible and we really, really thank you for leading this well, work. I appreciate the platform and y'all helping me lose whichever, however few friends I got left. <laughs> Talking back about it. But it's all, you know what? It's all good. It's part of the work. Man. But thank you. I appreciate this platform and I'm familiar with some of the other podcasts y'all did. Y'all did a good job. So keep up the good work. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Literacy Lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.